Welcome back to the Talking Chang podcast, episode three. This week we have uh, something different, something non-cycling. We've got Dr. Arun Deer, who's a specialist bariatric surgeon. Uh, He's considered one of the leaders in Melbourne in the uh, procedure of the mini gastric bypass. And um, he's a plant-based surgeon, so I thought it would be interesting to have a chat with him and how he gets his patients to lose weight through lifestyle and diet choices before operating them on them as a, as a bariatric surgeon. For those that don't know, bariatric surgery is, a, is really weight loss surgery. And uh, he's actually written a book on the subject. Uh, the book comes out. It's actually available on Amazon. I'll have the link to the book in the show notes. And uh, it'll also be on YouTube. Uh, You can actually watch the vodcast on YouTube. So I really hope you enjoy this, guys. We talk about a whole range of things from surgery, complications of surgery, hairy moments uh, while he's operating, uh, plant-based lifestyle, mental health. So you name it, we cover it. And uh, if you like this, please rate. uh, Give us a rating on iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, Just obviously a positive rating would be better. And uh, if you'd like to follow up on Dr. Deer, I'll have some of his social links in the, uh, in the show notes and on YouTube. And uh, I'll see you guys in the next episode uh, of Talking Chang number four. But until then, enjoy Dr. Arun Deer. All right, so Arun, thanks for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. It's good to have you on board. You've been in a couple of the uh, Cycling Maven videos now. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, uh, we did some surgery up at the Northern Hospital. Correct. And uh, so that's something you regularly do, teaching surgeons. I mean, you're a, you're a, you're a senior surgeon. Well, look, I think uh, we all need to share the skills that we have learned. So it's very crucial that, you know, we all – grow by collectively learning and sharing. And that should be the way, uh, you know, how learning happens. We never know enough. And there are so many times that I have learned in the process of teaching. So yes, that's something that is really crucial uh, that I feel is important in the fabric of a surgeon's personality to be a leader. Yeah. So I suppose what I want to talk about initially is Mm. how you, where you came from and how you got into being what what drove you to be a surgeon right and then specifically what you're doing now i mean i mean where are you are you australian born well i clearly am not you know (laughs) (laughs) you never know your family might have been out here i think it's uh look i guess uh you know it's an interesting question that you ask because i have to go down the memory lane and a few years now actually it's more than a couple of decades that i've been in medicine and all of that. So born in India, my dad was in the army. So, you know, I was kind of traveled all over the country, but really brought up with these sort of principles of, you know, discipline and a very sort of, you know, uh, a kind of a committed sort of a routine. And that was kind of ingrained in how we looked at things. More importantly, how I became a surgeon, I think in my third year of med school, it was very obvious to me that I could not be a good physician, as in I could not just be prescribing tablets and medications and writing scripts and getting people to keep taking it for the rest of their lives, you know, because I wanted to do something which was hands-on, you know, really get into it and, you know, try and 
fix people and help them that way, you know. So, and I had a few amazing physicians fix people with. They do, yeah, they do, you know. But look, I, I just knew I wasn't cut out for that. So that's that's really uh, what it was. So bottom line was that you know I had to sort of uh, say. Uh, that, you know, I'm going to be a surgeon. And I had some amazing mentors, which I came across, and they really inspired me. So that's how I progressed in that field of surgery. And uh, look, you know what, looking back, every day has been an amazing day. And um, I still, I was telling someone the other day that every day when I get into my car to go to work, I just feel so grateful for the ability to be able to make a difference in someone's life. Yeah. You predominantly focus on um, bariatrics. You're an upper GI surgeon, correct? And, and suppose for people listening and watching, yeah. Um, upper, you, you know, general surgeons generally either go upper GI, yeah, or colorectal, correct? You know, from from the early days, you either branch into those two areas, yeah. or is it endocrine? Um, yeah, the endocrine surgery and then breast and endocrine is a combined sort of field or you become a hepatobiliary surgeon. So there are various, see, surgical training is really long. Like we spend about 10 years training to be a surgeon when we get into the surgical training program and you come out the other end as a subspecialized surgeon. So it's a long, tedious process, lots of on-calls, long operating hours. So it is challenging and it's really, really crucial for you to keep a balanced mind besides a well-rested body, which is ready to kind of, you know, because you've got people's lives at stake. So there is very little room for error. In fact, in many ways, the branch of surgery itself has been compared to that of uh, aeronautics where, you know, uh, flying a plane, you cannot afford to, you know, there's no room for error. Mm. So there's checks, cross checks and all that sort of thing. So really it taught me the value of looking after yourself first, uh, both in mind and body, so that you can make the best possible decision for people who entrust you with their lives. Mm. So yes, short answer to your question uh, is that yes, we branch out. It's a long, tedious process to train and become a surgeon, but it's worth every day. Mm. Yeah. So I've seen a, a, a change over the years from, you know, surgeons, you know, when I started doing my job, which is obviously Mm. selling surgical devices, Mm. um, I've seen a, a change from surgeons doing upper GI to, you know, colorectal and, and, and various other areas mm. to more bariatric surgery. And, and I think bariatric surgery has really exploded in the last 10 years. Would you say that? I would say so. And there are reasons for that. You know, uh, firstly, we have become more experienced, more skilled collectively as a group of surgeons to perform safe bariatric surgery. In fact, the most recent data that came out of Australia New Zealand Bariatric Registry actually said that the complication rate associated with bariatric surgery is very comparable to something like a cholecystectomy operation. Which, which, is, a, which is a fairly simple which operation. Which is a fairly kind of routine and a simple operation that we do. Uh, not to say that there are not specific complications associated with bariatric surgery, but more importantly, it is something which has advanced, the skills of anesthesia have advanced. So that is one of the key reasons. The other important thing is the uptake of bariatric surgery by the common community. We've got people who are so aware, they have researched, there are forums out there where people are talking about outcomes and they are better prepared. Better informed is better prepared, you know. So that's where... 
So with, I suppose, you know, for the layman, a lot of people wouldn't even know what bariatric surgery is. Sure. Essentially, what is it? Yeah. Well, bariatric surgery is weight loss surgery. That's really what it is. But it is, the name is changing. The name is changing from bariatric surgery to metabolic surgery. And there is a reason for that. Metabolic surgery is really an operation that we do in order to reduce an individual's risk of developing diabetes and metabolic syndrome, which is the name given to a set of three conditions. Individuals have got high HbA1c, which is a marker of risk of developing diabetes for an individual. Number two, they've got high blood pressure. And number three, they have got elevated cholesterols. Uh, All of this is compounded by a specific body habitus where they have enlarging waistline, which is predominantly visceral fat. That's the unhealthy fat. Visceral fat. So, and and when you say visceral fat, you mean tummy fat? Yes. Um, You know, correct. Okay. So we're sitting right in front of someone who has a lot of, you're sitting right in front of someone who has a lot of tummy fat. (laughs) And so, you know, if I put on weight, it is through my waist. Exactly. Why is that? Yeah. And Mark, that's a very good question because you know why? Uh, It's not just males who are predisposed to collecting fat around the waist. There's a lot of weight in the statement that, you know, longer your waistline, shorter your lifeline. And, you know, uh, the thing is that when we sort of, when we collect fat, normal mechanisms of collection of fat really are basically going to drive this fat which collect which collects in the body in the subcutaneous or below the skin to form a padding or an insulation. However, the toxic fat, which is the visceral fat that we are referring to, collects mostly in the middle part, which is in the trunk. And it's mostly in the liver, where it is called fatty liver. It's yeah. a very common condition now. I've, people, been, I've been diagnosed with yeah, fatty liver. Fatty liver is people think that, oh, it's normal, you know, and it's okay. Well, the thing is, any amount of excess fat in liver is not healthy. And the hypothesis has been, and a lot of studies are pointing to this, the toxins that we are exposed to in our environment, which is from food, from water, from the air that we breathe, body has got a very smart mechanism of packing all these toxins once it processes them into fat cells and storing them away. So in fat, they are relatively inert. It's not very metabolically active and it is stored away. Now this fat, when it collects in say liver, for example, starts to create inflammation. And that's when fatty liver then starts to go to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is it is causing inflammation in the liver. That's the technical name called NASH, N-A-S-H. And if that is not controlled at that point, then it goes to the next stage of liver cirrhosis. So just to let you know, uh, fatty liver or NASH is now the commonest condition which is requiring liver transplant in Western countries because of liver failure that it leads to. So So basically I need to get my shit uh, together. (laughs) It's it's really crucial that people get it. Yeah. Uh, Because fatty liver, any amount of fat, and I have kind of written about this on various platforms, that any amount of fat in the liver is not healthy. And you can control it in initial stages. How How do you control it? So the most important thing to understand is that we need all three categories of foods, such as proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. These are called macronutrients, okay? A lot of people come to me and they say, oh, we are just focusing on protein, 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 and cutting out fats from our diet. That's actually not good. It's not good for the body. 
we need fats too because there are certain vitamins which are only fat soluble like A, D, E, K. These are the vitamins which are fat soluble. But you got to go for the healthy fats such as avocado oil, such as flaxseed oils which are rich in, you know, the fats which reduce inflammation in the body. These are, you know, omega-3 and omega-6 kind of fatty acids. Even, uh, uh, you know, uh, fish oil is a very healthy anti-inflammatory source of fat. These are good fats, you know, grape seeds. And I find it interesting you're saying fish oil when you're a plant-based surgeon yourself. Yeah. Yeah, look, again, uh, I am a plant-based surgeon and that's a very important point that you've raised because I went plant-based because realizing that there is a food chain in nature, okay? And what that really means is that Uh, You know, if you take the entire pyramid with human beings at the top of the pyramid, if we talk about the food chain, the one at the top eats the one which is below. So below humans is animals, below animals could be fishes, and then below that is plants and other things, you know. So the point is, as you advance in the food chain, go higher and higher, you are accumulating the toxins that the one underneath carried, So what it is going to do is that you can get the same amount of healthy fats from the lower sources, which is plant-based sources. So healthy amount of, you know, anti-inflammatory fat you can get from plant-based sources, such as avocados, Uh, flax seeds, they're very good sources. Fish, I say, only because people come and ask me, oh, fish is very healthy. How can fish be unhealthy for you? Well, if it was, uh, you know, uh, wild ocean, cold uh, water, sort of, you know, harvested fish, yes, it would be very healthy. But we don't get that anymore. Mm. And that's the issue. We get a lot of toxins in fish. Uh, exactly. These days. Fishes are exposed to the same risk that animals are mm. because they are all farm grown, you know, mm. farm harvested. Mm. And they've got pesticides, herbicides and other toxins. So just going back to the fatty liver, which is a very, very common mm. ailment. Yes. Is that what you call it, an ailment? Yes. You can um, it. it is controllable. The liver is a, a, a fantastic uh, organ for repairing itself. Absolutely. Um, so it is It is controllable, but mm. um, can exercise. You know, if I go out and start riding, you know, 100 k's a day and keep my diet the same mm. as what it is now, yes. obviously I'm going to be burning more calories. Yes. Is that is that a way of managing? You know, okay. So when uh, you do exercise, do you burn the fat in your liver? Good question. Uh, But your question is also that without changing your diet, that's important. Okay. Now, they did a very good study about which uh, I have written and quoted that what they did was they took two groups of people who were trying to lose weight. One group, they said that eat whatever you want to, but exercise. Okay. And we're going to give you an exercise routine which is going to be about, say, you know, 60 to 90 minutes every day of the week for five days. Uh, And the other group, they said, only diet control, not exercise. Don't exercise, just diet control, which means you're controlling your calories and taking the, you know, the healthy plant-based diet. And this was actually a study which I've quoted in some of the articles that I've written. The important thing was what they found is after six weeks, people who are eating whatever they wanted, but exercising hard, did not lose enough weight, did not. Whereas the group that was on diet control, as in controlling the calories, but also keeping it predominantly plant-based, lost 
more weight, but more importantly, their metabolic parameters improved significantly, such as HbA1c. Uh, and, you know, their markers of inflammation, they improved significantly. So what it goes to prove is that you cannot use exercise to overcome guilt of having a bad diet the night before. Exercise is very important to stay fit. Don't get me wrong. But what is important is you cannot use that to overcome the uh, the guilt that, you know, you've had a full, you know, a packet of Tim Tams the night before and you can burn it off in the gym the following day. Mm. Yeah, I suppose. And, and you know, exercise is really going to contribute to the atherosclerosis buildup within vessels that's, that's you know, occurs from these, well, fatty foods or is it high yeah, protein? Yeah, look, I think it's fatty foods mostly and it's the cholesterol. Now, a lot of people think that, oh, if I just reduce the cholesterol that I'm taking, it'll help me. The thing is that cholesterol is a normal sort of, you know, uh, for want of a better word, it's a metabolite, you know, which is present in the body. It is required for lots of things, including making hormones. But the thing is, it's when the cholesterol becomes oxidized, which is, you know, toxic, that's when it starts to create problem and it makes crystals which tear into the blood vessels and then can cause the blood clot leading to either the stroke or as we say, you know, it can lead to angina because of the mm. vessels getting narrow. Yeah. You know, I find it interesting with this whole uh, internet diet, you know, plant-based versus uh, mm. keto yeah. versus, uh, you know, there's now the carnivore diet where people are just eating meat. Yes. And um, and I, I've, I find it amazing, right? So you've got, mm. you've got these people who are really advocating a plant-based uh, vegan diet and, yes. and are having some great success. I also yeah. know a lot of people who've put on significant weight on a, on a plant-based high-carb yes. high diet. Yes. yes. And then you've got this other school who yes. are keto, um, yeah. you know, high-fat, you know, medium-protein, mm. low-carb, mm. and they are having great success with their weight loss as well. Yeah. So, you know, and, and I mean uh, you've got, you know, guys like Joel Kahn who is uh, – who's a cardiologist, I think, yeah. went on Joe Rogan and really sung the the praises of plant based diet. And then you've mm. got Chris Kesser, who yes. I think he's Chris Kesser, who also went on the Joe Rogan podcast and sung the praises of a, a plant based. Uh, well, no, the oh, opposite, the opposite keto, yeah, diet. keto diet. Yeah, they both work. Yeah. So what you know what what is going on here, and who do I believe? Yeah. So Mark, look, uh, the thing is that in the journey of human evolution, you know, we've got more diets now that are available for people to choose from. But equally, we need to realize we are the heaviest that we are in our journey on this evolution as well. So what it really means is that we probably don't have the right answer. And what I always say is, go back to ancient wisdom. Look at people who have actually done it, you know. And I'm referring specifically to this project called the Blue Zones Project. I've spoken about it in the past. And what it is, is it studied people who were living beyond 80s without having had to go to a doctor. Because at the end of the day, the purpose of a diet should be to provide you a healthy body and a sound mind. That's what I believe is crucial. Reason for that is we can't just focus it uh, or focus on, okay, how much weight can I lose on this diet? Well, while that is important for some people and I recognize that, it's important that, you know, you remain disease-free, you remain healthy. So with that in mind, I think we have to be very honest that one diet cannot fit everyone. 
and I acknowledge that. The purpose of my work is not to convert the whole world into a plant-based, you know, sort of population. It will not happen, but more importantly, that's not my intention. Because you take the example of an Eskimo. If you take them off uh, their meat-based, fish-based diet, they are going to develop problems with their health. And this has been proven in lots of studies because of the circumstances and the geographical area in which they live. So what I say is that the diet that you are on or that you propose to be on should actually suit your individual profile. And in my view, the Mediterranean kind of a diet, which predominantly is plant-based, what these people were doing is that they were taking their foods from unprocessed sources or whole foods, as we call it, you know. That's very important. And their portions of meat was very, very minuscule, maybe once or twice in a day. And that was not processed either. It wasn't things like sausages and, you know, those kind of things. So for me personally, I always encourage people who come to see me to try and be on a plant-based diet if possible. Now, that may not work for everyone because of our previous conditioning, our gut microbiota, that has got an influence on the brain as well. So there are a variety of factors that come into play. But I always say that you got to work with what your body is telling you. You got to understand the cues. And that's how it should work. Yeah, it's interesting you me- you uh, mentioned the gut microbiome because I've mm. As my my viewers have uh, have known that in the last year, with obviously we having Jack and a lot of different pressures in life, mm. uh, for the first time in my life, I've suffered from a bit of anxiety mm. and a little bit of depression. Yeah, and for me, it's very odd. And and so when I look at what I'm eating and look at the factors involved, yeah, obviously having a new baby, but my diet and my weight have never been as bad. I've never been so bad with my diet mm. and I've never been really this this overweight, particularly through my midsection mm. and with fatty liver. Yeah. So it makes me then think, okay, how much does gut, gut microbiome or how much is it affecting me personally mm. and how much does it affect people in general with anxiety and depression? Yeah. Look, Mark, you raise a very uh, sort of, you know, a sensitive aspect of, you know, uh, it, it all falls under the domain of mental health, okay, and how that is influencing our overall physical being, you know. See, I, I'm a firm believer that as Alan Watts said, you know, the ancestor to every action is a thought. How you are in your mind is going to influence everything else that you actually do, you know. And this is an area of medicine which has been highly, highly controversial, but has been researched a lot as well. Now, just to give you a, you know, a summary of a recent study where they actually investigated people who were shift workers. So, you know, these were people who work in airports, hospitals, nurses, and all that. They gave them the same calories as far as their diet goes. So they kept the calories same. But what they found at the end of four weeks only of this study was that people who were sleep deprived, which is getting under five hours of good quality sleep, landed up gaining a lot of weight, especially around the waist. In comparison to the other group that was getting at least eight hours of sleep. Now, what that tells us is that our body works in this thing called as a circadian rhythm 
there are hormones, like we know this, melatonin and other hormones, which is a sleep hormone. It starts to come up in the evening after sunset. So the body has a rhythm by which it works. Now, when we are stressed or we are sleep deprived with, you know, in your case, perhaps Jack getting up at night and, you know, uh, you have to change the nappy and all of that, you know. So that disrupts your sleep cycle. What that does is then increases our reliance on going for stimulants like sugar. Sugar is a stimulant, you know. Caffeine. People go for smoking, nicotine, you know. And making those food choices which are not really in your best interest. So that's where the link between, you know, stress and food choices or your, you know, sort of ability to regulate your metabolism comes in. And, you know, the, the, the thing with human beings is that the stress response is something that can be triggered by thought alone, which is you might think of a coworker who's been bothering you and, you know, it triggers a stress response in you. It could be a previous boss or, you know, an ex-partner or anyone, you know. So those are the things that are unique to humans, which lead to things like anxiety and all of that, which can influence your food choices, which will then influence your gut microbiome. Yeah. And how do you fix your gut microbiome? Or how do you, you know, I've heard of, because I mean, let's, let's talk about gut microbiome. Mm. It's obviously a bacteria in your gut. And there's a Correct. lot of studies out currently and a lot of people talking about it, uh, how these, this bacteria can affect your mood and your, uh, your general well-being, mental well-being. And so, you know, if you've got a bad gut microbiome, how do you repair it? Yeah. Well, I wish had a, uh, I had an easy answer, Mark, because the thing is that, you know, this is an evolving science, okay? There is no easy answer that, uh, you know, eat this and your gut microbiome will be fixed or take a probiotic pill and, you know, your gut microbiome will be fixed. The short answer is we really don't have the right answer. Now, there are things that we can do from lessons that we have learned from our ancestors that will help us. And as Hippocrates, the father of medicine said, first thing is do no harm. And he's got a fantastic way of saying that, you know, all disease begins in the gut. So first thing that I say is that there has to be a multi-pronged approach if you want to kind of get a handle on this. And the first thing that I always begin with is that control and ascertain where is your stress level at the moment? See, we live in a world of distraction, which is building in our subconscious level a lot of stress and work for the brain. Human beings currently have to make up to 60 to 70,000 decisions every day. Now, you might say, hang on, I, I don't think I have to make so many decisions. And I'll challenge that. Whether you have to wear this dress or this dress to work. Start from the morning, I'm okay? Not, I don't wear dresses. Or well, or, you, or whatever you're wearing, you know, and then you have to check your WhatsApp, you have to check your messages, you have to check your emails, you know, respond. So everything is a decision process. The more decisions your brain has to make, the more work it has to do, which builds a stress on a subconscious level. And I think that is where everything starts because stress releases this cortisol hormone, which stimulates the specific receptors in the abdomen causing fat to collect within the abdomen. 
Now, that is the reason why, you know, people have longer waistlines because of a combination of things, stress affecting food choices, stress affecting, you know, your uh, your gut microbiome. We know it uh, influences that stress affecting the blood supply to the gut. We know people who are excessively stressed develop ulcers in the stomach. Again, it's a well-known fact. So point is, that's where you got to start. And the one thing that I recommend that you start is meditation. Now, a lot of people think, oh, it's a religious exercise and all that. Not at all. Not at all. Even a walk in the park, spending some time with nature is like a meditation. Something that calms you down. Something that allows you to connect with the present. Because let's be honest, we have gotten so used to living our lives, either in the past or in the future, that it can create a lot of unwanted stress in our lives. Yeah, I have to agree with that. There's uh, Tim Ferriss, there's a few podcasters mm. that I listen to um, mm. who are very much into uh, meditation. And there's some great meditation apps. I've actually, I yeah. pay a full premium on Headspace. Yes, that's a good one that I've heard of. That's a good one. And mm. there's, a, there's a few others. Yeah. And uh, and I have found that it's, it's helped me, it's particularly with my anxiety, mm. um, doing at least uh, 10 to 15 to 20 minutes of uh, Headspace a day. Yeah. And they say you should do it in the mornings. I think that's a very good idea Mm. to do it in the morning. In fact, if I would go a step further, I would say do it first thing in the morning when you wake up, set a time for that, and then do it before going to bed as well. Yep, yep. Now quickly just finishing up with the uh, the diet side of things. Yes, yes. You know, is it calories in, calories out? Uh, Does it matter the macronutrients that you're eating? Does it really... Obviously, there's more dense, uh, the dense fats and proteins mm. have, have more calories per portion size. Correct. And then obviously, you can eat a lot of salad. You can eat yeah. a massive bowl of salad for the same size of, uh, for a tiny piece of steak, which would be equivalent yeah. to the same calories. Yeah. Is it calories in, calories out? Or is it, is it you know, there's, there's some people on the internet that are saying, you can eat as many carbs as you want and you'll never get fat. Yeah. Look, uh, Mark, there are no blanket statements, you know, and I think what is very important is that, you know, the model of calories in, calories out is an outdated model. We know it is not sustainable. Calorie counting builds, again, a subtle level of anxiety and a subtle level of stress in people who actually count calories, you know. Mm. It is really not sustainable. Mm. What I say is that eat guilt-free. That's crucial, you know. Eat in a relaxed manner. Eat with gratitude, you know. And eat with respect for your body. If you have respect for your body, fine, you can have that piece of chocolate cake once in a while. We all indulge a little bit. But what is more important is to justify it. So make sure that you are balancing it with good quality carbs, good quality. And carbs can come from potatoes which have not been fried. You know, they have been cooked in a way like, steamed potatoes, would you know that people who were a part of the Okinawa, the Blue Zones project, these are Japanese people from Okinawa who were living beyond 80s into their 90s, haven't seen a doctor. Their staple food was yam. Yam is basically a, you know, same family as potatoes. That was their staple food along with rice. Now, that's all carbs, and you would say, hey, this is carbs, you know, this is and not there's, healthy. There's no nutrients in white rice for you, you know, like. Yeah, so the point is you got to mix it up. you got mm. to have a balanced diet. So yeah. a bit of protein, a bit of carbs, and a bit of healthy fat. 
Are you seeing uh, with this introduction to high car- high protein diets, low carb? You know, I've seen a lot of younger men developing lower rectal bowel cancer and bowel cancers. Is this attributed? Is there a link to high protein diets and yeah, with and bowel cancer? Yeah. So, uh, Mark, I think we covered this in one of our previous videos. The important thing is that not many people are aware of this, and this is not in the interest of the meat industry, that red meat is the number one carcinogen for colon cancer. Now, is it, is it, now I need to clarify, is yes. it red meat, including steaks? Or my understanding is the World Health Organization has said that it is processed meat, i.e., yes. you know, bacon and, and sausages and yeah. salamis and all that. That is true. But let's be honest about it, that the amount of processing that the red meat goes through in order to land on our dinner plates is significant. It's not easy to get the actual organic grass-fed, you know, meat that we are actually looking at. Red meat also has got things which are not now verified by World Health Organization, but several studies have attested to this. They have got what is called as the heme iron. Now, heme iron is essentially the kind of iron which is pro-cancerous. It is pro uh, for cancer cells and it makes them grow. It is pro-inflammatory, you know, so it causes more inflammation in the body. So let's not forget, if you're really fussed about proteins, you can get good quality proteins from plant-based foods such as quinoa, soya, beans, and legumes. They are very good sources of proteins. You just got to mix them up. So yeah. that's the key thing. Yeah. The other question that you have is that does it does taking excess protein actually expose you to some health risks? And the short answer is yes. In our society at the moment, we are giving ourselves 50 to 100% more protein than what we actually need. Now, that is a lot of protein. We haven't heard of protein calorie malnutrition in the developed countries. Yeah, I was going to say, we've never, have we ever heard no. of anyone with, with, with protein deficiencies? N- not, in, not in, yes, these were heard of in countries like Africa, in India, you know, in the remote areas where there was not enough nutrition and people were just taking carbs, you know. But that's unheard of in developed societies because we are, as a society, we've become obsessed with protein. But did you know that excess protein intake puts a lot of strain on your kidneys, which can make you at risk of developing gout? It creates more inflammation. It creates more more bowel issues. So that is crucial to understand. What we are deficient in in our society is fiber. And fiber only comes from plant-based fiber. And in in relation to your previous uh, reference to the gut microbiome, gut microbiome in human beings only needs one thing, and that is plant-based fiber. Because that is what is food for the healthy bacteria in the gut. So taking a probiotic pill is not going to fix your gut microbiome as much as the prebiotics will. And prebiotic is nothing else but a plant-based fiber. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. And then, you know, people battle over, should I eat fruit or should I eat more vegetables? And, you know, even Mm. on these people, I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of evidence and I don't want to obviously dwell on this too much, but there's a whole bunch of evidence on fasting. So, yes. so now people are really going into not just keto stuff, but they're, they're, they're trying to fast. And so what yeah. have you read and heard on yeah. the fasting side of things? Correct. So, uh, Mark, uh, intermittent fasting is a now well-researched and it's a well-described you know, technique for not only 
boosting your metabolism and, you know, sort of they talk about healing your body, but more importantly, to reverse aging. Now, that may sound like a very tall claim, but what I say is that you go back to our ancient cultures, you know, whether it's Hinduism, whether it's Buddhism or Christianity, you know, there was this thing called as Daniel's fast, which has been described in the Bible. What was that? Daniel's fast was, uh, you know, Daniel, who was a character mentioned in the Bible, would take grains, fresh water, uh, and, uh, you know, some legumes as a meal. That's it. You know, it has been described in the Hindu culture as well, where you fast on certain days of the lunar cycle, because that's what the Indian calendar is based on, you know. So the point is intermittent fasting does a few things for the body. This is talking science behind it now, that it increases the production of growth hormone. It also increases your insulin sensitivity and it boosts your metabolism because of the balancing it produces in the hormones in the body. And lastly, it's a way of detoxification. Like animals in nature hibernate. What is that? That's fasting, you know, that's what they are doing. So the point is, it's a great exercise. And what I suggest to people, and I do this personally. So on a Sunday, which is a day when I am in a little bit more control than other days, what I do is I do juicing. So my day starts with uh, breakfast, which has got a cup of tea and a handful of nuts and a banana. Then I have juice all through the day. So I take carrot, beetroot, celery, apple, and I throw that all into my juicer and I make a liter and a half of a jug of juice, you know. And that's what now my kids have taken on this. My wife has also taken on it that, you know, they say, hey, there's so much juice that is made. That's what we have all through. And in the evening, what we do is that we essentially have green tea. That's what I have. Now, you might say that that's a little bit uh, too extreme. You know what? Initially, when you start, it's okay. It might sound a little bit tough, but then slowly your body gets used to it. And believe me, on Monday, you're going to feel so clean. Mm. It is a fantastic feeling, you know. Mm. I would not give anything to trade for that feeling. Yeah. Yeah, well, you've inspired me to get my diet together. <laughs> um, so going back to the surgery side of things, which yeah. is obviously, you know, that's where you're, you and I really met mm. um, in that world. Yes. You know, you, you see inside a lot of patients' stomachs. Which I is, do. <laughs> which, is, uh, which is very unique in, in, in the world. And... Uh, what are some of the crazy, you know, looking at some of these sick patients, you know, looking at their livers and yeah. have you ever looked at a liver and gone, oh, my God, that thing's just cactus or, you know, looked inside someone's bowel and gone, my God, this person needs to go plant-based and seen big chunks of meat. <laughs> you know, what? what it, <laughs> yeah, no, thankfully it hasn't happened that way. But you know what? Very recently I was operating on a nurse who came to see me because – she had diabetes, she was overweight, her BMI was in the 40s. She did not drink, that's what she said. And uh, and also she was kind of trialing a few diets here and there, but it wasn't really working for us, for, for her. So the thing is that, you know, when the BMI has gone to that extreme, that it's above 35, diabetes has set in, it's really hard to just be on diet and exercise and, you know, use sheer extreme willpower to kind of bring everything back to normal. No, I'm not saying it's impossible. I mean, it I is, find it hard now. Yeah. I'm finding it harder now than five years ago. 
That's right. Yeah. And, you know, as we are aging, the body's metabolism is slowing down. You know, you're not as active as you were when you were probably, uh, you know, 10 years younger. So long story short, we talked about weight loss surgery and we elected to go ahead with a bariatric procedure for this nurse. And uh, the surprising thing for me, and that's what you were asking that, you know, any surprises that you came across, she had, she, we knew she had fatty liver and she knew that too. But when I went in, her liver was actually cirrhotic, which means that there were big nodules of scar tissue, which had formed on the liver, which was quite intense. Now, uh, really, if your liver has reached to a stage of cirrhosis, it's not reversible, you know. And that was not because of alcohol, but because of the fat, as I described earlier on, you know. The fat is so toxic, it creates inflammation. Inflammation leads to scarring, and that is what leads to liver cirrhosis. So we took some liver biopsies, and she did well from the surgery, but it's still sort of, you know, only a couple of months that she's had a surgery. So hopefully with her improving diet, a bit of weight loss that has kicked in, it should improve. But I'm not sure that her liver cirrhosis will entirely reverse, uh, but hopefully it will not progress. Yeah, and what does that mean to her, cirrhosis of the liver? So cirrhosis of the liver really is, uh, as I just described that, you know, the liver is compromised in its function. Now, God has made, or whoever our creator is, has made these organs with a lot of reserve in them, you know. We can chop off up to three-fourths of the liver and it'll grow back up. You know, we do that anyways for cancer operations where we, cancers of the liver, where we have to remove three-fourths of the liver and it still grows back. So that's amazing. But when the liver has undergone this process of cirrhosis, the body's reserve for the liver specifically or the liver's reserve has gone down significantly. And what that means is that, you know, if this individual were to take, say, a lot of alcohol or, uh, you know, if there was any further insult on the liver, that can lead to issues in relation to liver failure. Yeah, it's and, not good. Which is not good, of course. I suppose, you know, when we talk about the uh, the esophagus, then it goes into the, you know, through the uh, through the stomach, valve, the yes, hiatus yes. into the stomach, and then yeah. it goes down through our yeah, bowels and stuff. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of places where we can develop cancer, and mm. and uh, and I hear that in terms of surgery, yes, esophageal cancer is one of the worst places to get it. Is that would that be true, or lower mm. rectal cancer, where they have to do an APR? Yeah. Well, they're all complex in their unique ways. So I can't say that esophageal is more complex than, you know, the lower rectal and all that. They are all complex because cancer surgery by itself is challenging. Mm. And also when we have to not only remove that particular organ, but also the lymph nodes that where the cancer can spread. Mm. I think the challenging thing with the esophagus is that the food pipe goes through three different body cavities, which is the neck, the chest, and then the abdomen. So an operation to remove the entire food pipe involves entry or, you know, operation into all three of these body cavities, which can be quite a challenge because of patient positioning, uh, you know, other things that have to go around it from a technical point of view. So that's where the complexity of it comes in, you know. But that being said, every operation is associated with its own risks and a unique set of complications. So I won't say that, you know, esophageal cancers are less or more challenging than the rectal cancers. Yeah, yeah. My first introduction into um, surgical device world was 
going and spending time with a colorectal surgeon. It was my first ever operation oh. that I went and he was cutting out someone's, it's what's called an APR. Yes, so, I, could, I could sense that so when you use that term. You so, know? so it was an APR, I'll never forget it. I'll never forget these three letters, APR. <laughs> and it was the most terrifying thing. This yeah. man was bent over and they cut out. Google APR guys, Google APR. <laughs> but they cut out a big chunk of his his, his butt, and uh, it was it was not a pleasant experience. I can tell you, it has a huge impact on your <laughs> initial meeting with a colorectal surgeon. <laughs> it was uh, one of the it's one of the most horrific uh, mm. procedures that you'll see as an observer in theatre. Yeah. Uh, another one that I find quite uh, confronting is seeing post bariatric patients get mm. uh, their abdominoplasties. Because oh, yeah. they're very large incisions yes. and they're very large chunks of fat that are being cut off the patients. Correct. What's your experience with yeah. that? Do you do AP, do you do, um, not Abdominoplasties. Abdominoplasties. Yeah, certainly don't do APRs anymore. Uh, but the thing is that, uh, you know, it looks confronting because of the uh, size of the excess skin that needs to be removed. But I think the surgery itself is quite transformational. It gives so much confidence to these patients because they've lost massive amounts of weight. And, uh, you know, they're carrying this fold of skin. Which is called a panis. Which is called a panis, exactly. Mm. And uh, what it is doing is it's causing sweating, infection, fungal growth and all of that, you know. So it's, they are it's not so, pleasant. no, it's not pleasant and it's smelly and all of that. So, no. you know, the thing is that it is, uh, yes, it may appear to be a gross operation, but you know what, it's really transformational for them. Yeah, it's funny you say that because my my mother has just had a, um, a some bariatric surgery. She didn't have a mini gastric bypass. She had a a sleeve. Yes, and she's lost a lot of weight, and now she's got a panis. And in right. Australia, it's quite expensive to get an abdominoplasty. Yes. Yes, and that's the issue, correct, you know, and that's why a lot of people fly overseas to Thailand and other places. Would you to recommend get this that? Done. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do you seriously off, think I, I would? Off the record. <laughs> <laughs> off the record. Well, look, I, I often say that, you know, if you won't drink the water of that country, why would you go and get operated, you know? Yeah. And I think, uh, yes, it is being touted as medical tourism. You go and stay in a nice resort and get your surgery done. But the kind of complications that we see, like, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, you know, sickening. A lady lost her entire breast from a breast reduction operation that she had gone for. So so we hear about these cases from time to time because there's hardly any follow-up. There's not much audit about that particular surgeon's results. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some very skilled surgeons out there as well. But I guess what we pride ourselves over here in Australia and New Zealand is a uniform standard of you know care that you get from any surgical uh, clinic that you go to plus the follow-up. So uh, I think that's where I take comfort. Surgery is not something that you can do in a fly in, fly out fashion, you know. It's crazy. I've marveled at the fact that, you know, these young women mm. to save five grand or just to save a few thousand dollars are yeah. flying to, to Thailand because they put you up in a hotel yeah. for, a, for a week. Yeah. And do operations on you, and you, you don't know sterility. There could be staph infections. There could be all sorts of things going on. Yeah. It's crazy. I don't understand it. Absolutely. And I always say that, you know, if you are well, if you are healthy, you can always earn back the money, you know, don't compromise your health. Yeah. And that's where I think we are really fortunate in Australia to have a fantastic, well-regulated, 
well-audited and a well-controlled health system, including the public health system, which is which all of us have access to. I understand that, you know, the abdominoplasty or the weight loss, post-weight loss surgery, uh, you know, the plastic surgery side of things is not freely available in the public system, but that's where we want to be advocates, you know. Mm. We want to put people in power who can bring about those sort of, you know, regulations so that we've got access to more weight loss surgical procedures in the public system for everyone. Yeah, yeah. So in your surgical, you know, obviously I, I stand there in theatre with you and, you you know, you, you got the scissors and you got it mm, laparoscopically mm. and there's lots yes. of fatty tissue and you're sort of shifting things around. Mm. Have you ever been in a situation where you've cut through a major vessel or something and you've just, or have you seen it, you know, as a, as a registrar, seen other surgeons yeah. do it? And what do you do? Like that would be a, just a terrifying moment. Yeah. I've seen, an, a, well, there's a major vessel that goes up from the inguinal region, the inferior epigastrics, and yes. I don't know if it's a major vessel, but I've certainly seen someone cut through that before yeah. and it was quite an edgy moment. Yeah. Well, it certainly is. And you're getting me into a tight corner now, Mark, <laughs> putting me up against the wall. <laughs> but look, you know what? I think as surgeons in our training, we've all seen and experienced and gone through, uh, you know, these sort of instances and these sort of horrific instances, let's put it this way. And it's a part of maturing process, you know. Surgical maturity comes with making bad judgments and bad decisions, you know, and, and you learn from that, you know. I can say with confidence and hand on my heart that I haven't lost a patient, but yes, we have had complications. We've had issues where, you know, uh, we, we damaged a very major vessel at the time of surgical dissection when we were trying to carve out this very stuck tumor, which was in this part of the bowel called the duodenum. So duodenum is something that, you know, uh, attaches to the stomach. So that's the first part or the topmost part of the small bowel that attaches to the stomach. And it was in the third part of the duodenum where this tumor was stuck and we were trying to shave it off the one of the major vessels in that area. And there was a, a damage to the wall. And, you know, in many ways, uh, if you were to have a damage, you would rather have damage to an artery than a vein. And the reason for that is arteries, as you probably might know, are thick-walled and they have got blood flowing in high pressure. So you can see the blood spurting out. So you can actually see it, put your finger on it and take a stitch. But when there is damage to the vein, which is a low-pressure system and it's taking all the blood back to the heart, the blood just oozes. It just keeps oozing out, you know. You just have to... It, it's a challenge to have to fix a bleeding from a vein, a large vein. Yeah, and that was the biggest thing, you know, for us at that point. In time. And I mean, I've I've seen these situations, and and as someone who has observed it firsthand, yeah, when you've got a pool of blood, yeah, trying to find a leak underneath that pool of blood, yeah. You know, trying to swipe aside the pool of blood and then to find the leak is a yeah. very difficult thing to do. It is indeed. And, and you know, that's where various techniques of actually putting pressure on that area, trying to kind of get a handle, get adequate lighting and, you know, the various things that have to go. And most importantly, keeping your calm. Because the thing is, if you're really stressed out, you are kind of in a reactive mode, you can take wrong decisions. And, you know, which is where one of the first things that we were told, and this is back in the days of open surgery, when we were not, when laparoscopic surgery wasn't that advanced, the teaching was that, uh, you know, put some pressure, go into the tea room, have a cup of tea or relax first. <laughs> what? 
Yeah, really? this sounds very counterintuitive. And now if you translate that, there's a very interesting sort of, you know, uh, a hilarious uh, bit of, you know, snippet here that I can share with you and your audiences that, you know, uh, very recently or not that long ago, I was observing a surgeon who was being mentored by a senior surgeon uh, in a particular procedure. And suddenly there was this bleeding, you know, that started to happen. So the senior surgeon who was mentoring the junior surgeon, and I was just observing, I wasn't even scrubbed. He said, uh, you know, he, this senior surgeon was observing this junior surgeon trying to kind of, you know, fix it, do this, do that in a very kind of jittery fashion. So he, uh, the senior surgeon said, do you mind if I just take over now uh, and I'll tell you what we should do. So all he did was took two packs and put it over there, got the assistant to put a nice pressure, cleaned up everything and I said, let's go for a coffee. All right. Now, this might sound very counterintuitive, but what were you, you know, thinking? I was thinking that, well, it's probably not a bad idea because you give the anesthetist a chance to catch up, give the fluids to the patient. And there's no bleeding that's happening because you've put pressure on that area from where the bleeding was coming, you know. So essentially, they came back. They slowly removed those gauze pieces which were there. The bleeding had significantly reduced. And again, now this is an assessment that you have to make at the time, depending on how extreme the bleeding is, you know. So the bleeding had, and they could see more importantly where the bleeding was coming from and they could put a stitch and control that bleeding. But I suppose during the coffee, he sat there and he would have said, yeah, so calm down. It's just chill, take yeah. a breather. Because this is what this is all about, teaching yeah. young surgeons. Exactly, you know, and, and interesting you mentioned that. He had one coffee and he said, let's go to the senior surgeon. Let's go and quickly find out. He said, no, wait, this is a two cappuccino bleed. So, you know, have another coffee, you know. <laughs> what a legend. <laughs> yes. I'm going to ask and who this was later. This, guy this guy's gone up 10 levels awesome. in my book. Oh, my God, you know. So it was a two cappuccino bleed. <laughs> that is so good. That is so good. So I always marvel um, uh, with, you know, how much a guy like you, you're a surgeon, you are training people, uh, you know, you're doing this coaching and you're doing, you've got a family, you've got two kids. Um, you've also written a book and which I find how do you find that I want to write a book on cycling and you know, I want to mm. write a book within the cycling realm and yet, I can't even find the time and I'm not even as busy as what you are. How do you find the time to do that? Okay, so uh, I want to refer to you a quote that I read from Napoleon Hill. Now, Napoleon Hill wrote this book called Think and Grow Rich, which has been a life changer for millions and millions of people across the globe, you know. Now, a lot of people think, oh, think and grow rich, it must be about money and all that. And when my wife saw the book for the first time, uh, you know, she said, oh, how come you've started reading these kind of books now, you know? And the important thing is that the word money is referred in that book only six times, okay? The book is all about mindset. And the one quote that comes to mind by Napoleon Hill, which I've really sort of took down and put it into my subconscious is whatever the mind can conceive and believe the mind can achieve. Mm. Now that's written on my whiteboard in my home office. I'm going to go and write I, it on my whiteboard. And uh, yeah, I look at it every day and I say, whatever the mind can conceive and believe the mind can achieve. So you conceive it. You got to believe in it that you can do it. Now, three years ago when I got the idea of writing a book with my busy lifestyle, being a, dad, being a surgeon, educator, all of that, you know, 
said, how can I write a book? You know, I had lots of self-doubt. I had lots of, you know, questions around whether I do really have something to say uh, that can be transformed and I think into that's a book. No, I think that's normal. I yeah, think that's, that's normal, normal for most but, people. You question whether yeah. what you've, your voice is actually. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, you know, the interesting thing was, Mark, that over the course of those three years, I kind of just persisted with that dream. And the one thing that helped me a lot, which I can share with your audience, is the habit of journaling, you know, habit of putting things down on paper. So if you come to my house, uh, in my office, I've got like series of journals that I use, you know, one is, and I just pencil down my thoughts. Just, it's like a mental down dump, you know, that's what I call it. And that has helped me crystallize where do I focus my energy on? Because we all have 24 hours in a day. God hasn't given, uh, you know, Bill Gates more hours in a day than he has to you and me, you know. So we all have the 24 hours. It's how we spend our time that is crucial. So as they say, you know, how you spend your time is how you spend your life. And we only get one life. So it was something which I was really passionate about. It was on my list of to-do things. And um, you know what? It kind of sometimes surprises me how I managed to do that. So, you know, it, a, a motivation, a motivating quote or a motivating mindset is, is one thing, but then when you sit down and you start writing a page, you know, and you got the kids, it's, it's, I know. it's still, a, it's another thing, isn't yeah. it? And, and, you know, especially for me, I yeah. love watching you. I'm addicted, you know, I'm addicted to entertainment. Yeah. So I love watching YouTube videos yeah. or, you know, even chocolate. Like that's, these are my addictions, you know, not alcohol as much. I <laughs> yeah. I'm not a big, massive fan of alcohol. I love yeah. a beer every now and then. Yeah. But entertainment, I love watching YouTube videos. Yeah. So then, you know, thinking about writing a book, I'm like, oh. I know. You know? I know. But you know what? I, I want to say this, and it really is important to my heart. My wife, Ritika, who really, really supported me, I know how many arguments we had about going to this party and me not being able to join her and she having to take the kids by herself. But you know what? I couldn't have done it without her support. Yeah. And uh, I also believe, Mark, that when, uh, you know, as they say, uh, when uh, the world follows a man who knows where he's going, because if you have a clear destination in your mind, you will find it so amazing. Things line up, you know. There were days when, you know, my wife would say, okay, you want to write a book? That's okay, no problems. I'll take the kids because initially there were issues, but then slowly it began to settle down, you know. So I allocated time every week when I'm going to write the book and those kind of things. So I think uh, there were it was more a journey of self-discovery for me more than anything else. Mm, yeah, that's I could imagine that. And and what a great achievement. So the book launches on the 10th on the 10th of December. 10th of December. Right. Yeah. I'm going to be there for that for oh, uh, runs doing a book launch and I'm going to do a vlog. I suppose, a little vlog from, awesome. from the night. But um, I'll link Arun's book in the show notes. I don't know if people can buy it. Can people buy the – They can, yeah. It's actually available on Amazon now. Okay, so, so it's a plant-based sort of philosophy yeah. with work with work throughs. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. The title of the book is Happy Gut, Healthy Weight. And mm. the book has been written as an instrument of service for, you know, my clients who came to see me. That's how it started. That uh, how can I – be of better service and, you know, help these people who are struggling with excess weight and struggling with, you know, health issues, chronic health issues, you know. So the focus is really on the weight, but the principles can be applied to almost anything, you know, anyone who's wanting to achieve, say, better quality health, more energy levels, more vitality and all of that. Yeah. 
So, and it's not a cookbook or a recipe book where there are multiple recipes and all that, no. But we take a whole person integrative approach to how your gut health, and it includes things like stress management. It includes things like gut microbiome, you know, how it is influencing your metabolism. I talk about things like uh, intermittent fasting. I talk about exercise. I talk about meditation in that book. Mm. And then I also talk about genes because a lot of people are conditioned to believe that, you know, we are what we are because of our genes. You know, this is our genetic makeup. I hear it all the time, you know. The, the amazing thing or the amazing discovery is in the science of epigenetics now, epi meaning above and genetics means the genes, you know, there is something above the genes which can actually help change your genetic makeup. Now, who would have thought of that, you know? So there's a famous quote on that which says that, you know, genes load your gun, but it's the environment that pulls the trigger. And that summarizes everything, you know. So don't blame your genes, you know, you can change it. I love that. And that is a great note to finish on. Arun, thank you for coming and spending some time on the Talking Chang podcast. And uh, My pleasure, I, Mark. I will, uh, I'll see you at the book launch on the 10th. It's always a delight speaking to you. Thank you.